0: Hey, Rachel, what's the deal with Angel these days?
1: Which one, Miles? There's the original Warren Worthington III, the time-displaced teenage version, Angel Salvador. Uh,
0: the original, I, I-, I think. I mean, he looks like the original, but he seems pretty off these days.
1: Long blonde hair? Metal wings? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's Warren Well Sort of. Sort of. It's his body anyway, Mostly. Mostly. Well, the metal wings obviously aren't the originals. Uh, yeah, what's with that? I-, I thought
0: they'd reverted to feathers, way back during the stuff with Ozymandias.
1: The feathers were techno-organic. Seriously? Yeah, Wolfsbane ripped off his wings during X-Force. Why would she do that? She was brainwashed. Oh. Anyway, the wings grew back metal, and it turned out both that the feathers had themselves been a different expression of the same thing, and that Warren had some psionic control over his form, whether he appeared as the blue and bladed archangel or the pink feathery original flavor. So he's still archangel? No? No? No. See, after X-Force murdered baby Apocalypse on the moon... I'm just gonna let that one sit. Good call. Anyway, Apocalypse's death triggered the Death Seed he'd planted in Warren to trigger Warren's original transformation to Archangel. Death Seed? I thought he'd use the techno-organic virus. Oh, it's a Celestial thing.
0: Celestial. The giant robot-looking dudes who show up every now and again to monkey around with evolution.
1: That's actually armor, but yeah, those guys. Right. Okay, carry on. Right. So, the Death Seed basically started to turn Archangel into a new Apocalypse. Bad times. Exceptionally. So, X-Force hopped over to Earth-295.
0: The Age of Apocalypse. Apocalypse. I thought it was destroyed, you know, at the end of Age of Apocalypse.
1: Nah, Jean Grey saved it off panel. Of course. So X-Force thought they could pick up a life seed there to counteract the death seed. Like you do. Except it turned out that Warren had actually been manipulating them from the start, and he was planning to use the life seed to destroy and then restart life on Earth. That's not good. No. Fortunately, he only got as far as a small town in Montana before Psylocke stopped him. How'd she manage that? Stabbed him through the head with her psionic dagger, wiping out all of his personality and memories. Ouch. Yeah, she did manage to slow motion play out an entire happy life and old age for the two of them in his mind in the process, but it was still pretty brutal. And Warren ended up reverted to a tabula rasa, along with the default form of pink skin and metal wings. So what's Angel like as a blank slate? Fairly affable. He did think he was a real angel for a while, though, which was awkward. What did he do? Ah, you know, the usual. Bunch of charity-type stuff. Healing people. Unprompted inspirational speeches. Okay. Tried to fly to heaven. What?! Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 70 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
0: So, man, that cold open, that was a lot. And we didn't even get to the stuff from Chuck Austin's run, the whole angel devil stuff.
1: I know. I actually thought about trying to build that in, and, you know, when he turned back pink because of the whole Black Tom thing. But I kind of had to draw a line somewhere, and it, the cold open was, was getting to be like a quarter of the script.
0: Yeah, that was a almost three page cold open for the record. listeners. You know, I
1: actually we can talk about this for a minute because people have asked us periodically, you know, why didn't you put this in the cold open? How do you write these? How did these come up? And the thing with the cold opens, you'd think that the hard part would be explaining everything, but it's really not because cold opens, you really can't explain everything. And they're generally about highlighting a particularly weird or convoluted bit of continuity or particularly, you know, remarkable escalation, as in the case of this one. And it's less about trying to get everything on than choosing the specific details that sort of keep that rhythm and pattern going. You know, the episodes are sort of where we do the much, much more in-depth explanation. And even there, we don't always have time to touch on absolutely every single thing.
0: As our kind commenters are, uh, are so good as to point out.
1: Anyway, speaking of comments on the site, and speaking of things on the site, there has been a lot going on there and we actually kind of wanted to take a minute to do some internal housekeeping and talk about that because we know a lot of folks listen to the podcast through iTunes or through Stitcher or through another podcatcher and we mentioned periodically that there's a lot of content at rachelandmiles.com and I'm not sure if we've really sort of explained all of what's there and what you're missing if you're not clicking over.
0: Yeah, and since this is episode 70, which is a kind of round-ish number, we lot. sure, why not? It is. How do we do that many? I mean, I know how we did that many. We just did 69 before them and 70 now, but even so Um, so let's tell the listeners about awesome things we have. So first of all, probably my favorite supplemental thing we do is the episode art that we have David Wynn do for every single episode.
1: Right. And a lot of these things were Patreon milestones that we hit and that we've kept going. Uh, David Wynn is the official illustrator of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men. He is also a cartoonist who does a lot of independent comics. He is based out of the UK. He is an awesome dude. And you check out his work independent of this as well. We link it in the caption to the art every episode, but I'll drop a separate one in the as mentioned as well. Speaking of as mentions... Every episode has a visual companion. Comics are a really intrinsically visual medium. And so what we do every time we record, every time we write the outline and go through what we've talked about is go through the comics we've discussed and pull out, you know, critical illustrative moments that we put up in a gallery on rachelandmiles.com that usually goes up at the same time as the episode. That's been a little bit off over the last few weeks as we've been in the middle of the move, but we should be catching up properly again by now.
0: Yeah. Probably the other biggest thing we do besides the podcast itself are our video reviews. We get on YouTube every week and talk about the X-Men books that come out that Wednesday and, you know, review them, describe them a little bit, pick our favorites, that sort of thing.
1: Otherwise known as the Patreon milestone that Rachel acutely regrets.
0: (laughs) But that being said, since we agreed to do it, we're going to do it, damn it. So you should check that out. You can check it out at the site or just on YouTube itself, whatever.
1: There's also a bunch of other material that goes up on the site. If you sent us fan art, it'll probably end up there eventually. We've got articles, we commission essays. In theory, I will be getting back to doing recaps of X-Men Evolution. Again, that's something that's kind of gone up in the air while we've been moving and in the time around that, but those should be restarting again pretty soon.
0: And lastly, we have T-shirts of the month uh, that we sell on Redbubble. And guys, these are amazing. The new one especially is amazing.
1: We also have T-shirts of not the month that are perennial T-shirts, but the T-shirts of the month are limited edition shirts that exist for a month and then disappear into the ether forever. The current one is drawn by David Wynn, who, again, is our series artist. And it's X-Men playing D&D, and we are pretty excited about it.
0: Oh, yeah, that was originally the episode art for our giant size special number two, which was so much fun.
1: While we are shilling, I feel like I should mention merch in general. We have a red bubble shop, which is linked to. We also have buttons, and the buttons are available through Strange Tomorrow on Etsy, which is actually a shop run by El Collins, who you heard last episode on the podcast, and who does sets and individual buttons, in addition to a lot of really cool reclaimed comics and recycled comics buttons that have nothing to do with us.
0: Yeah. All of that said, let's talk about X-Factor and things getting stupidly, awesomely dark.
1: Oh, man. Yeah, this might be the most depressing four issues of X-Factor, like Distilled, Condensed. But the great thing
0: about X-Men and being an X-Fan is that you learn to get super excited about depressing things, so you can get really sad and really psyched at the same time, which is what we plan on doing for the duration of this episode.
1: I mean, it's kind of hilariously depressing. It just spirals and escalates. It's getting into some serious Jude the Obscure territory. But before we do that, maybe we should recap and sort of catch up to exactly where we are, because it's been a few weeks since we've looked at X-Factor.
0: Yeah, totally. You know, the premise remains pretty much the same as it has since the start of the series. The original five X-Men, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Angel, and Iceman are doing this kind of double life thing In public, they are X-Factor, which is a company that hunts down rogue mutants in private, or rather in public, but not advertising themselves. They are the X-Terminators, who are sort of evil super mutants, who in reality rescue the mutants that X-Factor is sent after.
1: And you would think are also clearly visually identifiable as the original X-Men, but no one has really made the connection. I guess maybe a couple of people did during the mutant massacre. Thor did, and one or the other of the Morlocks did, but that was about it. Speaking of Morlocks, X-Factor has amassed a large collection of waifs, strays, and renegade mutants many through the mutant massacre some before currently living with them are rusty who is a young pyrokinetic skids who is a teenage morlock just has got a force field whole bunch of morlocks let's see we've got leech Mask, Caliban, Erg, Tarbaby, Ape, and Beautiful Dreamer, and Artie Maddox, whose father you heard a lot about actually last episode, who is a lumpy pink psychic.
0: So yeah, the mutant massacre happened. These Morlocks got rescued. The mutant massacre didn't go so well for, well, the hundreds of Morlocks who died. Yeah, I was the
1: mutant massacre didn't go well for anybody.
0: Went pretty well for a lot of the Marauders.
1: Maybe like half of them got wiped out, though. Well, the other half, you know. I guess Sabretooth had a pretty good time. Mr. Sinister seems pretty smug about it. He's smug all the
0: time. But anyway, who the Mutant Massacre also did not go well for is Angel. At one point, he tried to save Artie by basically uh, taking on a bunch of marauders by himself at once in the tunnels. He ended up getting almost killed. His wings were crushed and mangled. He was crucified by them to a wall until Thor saved his life. So when last we left that hero, he is hospitalized and his wings are in terrible, terrible shape. He's almost dead.
1: Now, that's basically the recap on the action. But if you've been following this podcast, you know that there is another vital part to X-Factor, and that is the soap opera.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that.
1: Okay, so there's the perennial we've returned to the Silver Age Scott-Jean Warren love triangle kind of although right now instead of really being a love triangle it's mostly just a bunch of really awkward misunderstandings and poorly timed conversations compounded by the fact that Scott is technically married although when he left to go to X Factor his wife Madeline Pryor who will much later be revealed to be a clone of Jean Grey but right now all we know is that she looks a lot like her told him not to come back and so he left her and their infant son Nathan Christopher Charles Summers who current I, I always wonder what to call him because everyone is still calling him Chris at this point but I think of as Nathan because he was table for so much longer Uh.
0: how about we baby summers
1: that damn kid
0: that damn kid that works too that damn techno organic kid
1: i feel like if you drop archer references you get into this weird sort of circular thing because there are so many x-men references in archer
0: oh that's true as well he uh, referenced cypher at one point as i recall
1: he made derisive comments about cypher and sterling archer can go fuck himself
0: but anyway so cyclops did finally tell marvel girl that he was married to Madeline. He has finally started attempting to get in touch with Madeline and has thus far failed to do so.
1: Right. She hasn't been answering the phone. And in fact, the line has been disconnected. He's been trying to call her for the last either seven or nine issues with no success. And he has assumed, I think reasonably considering the terms on which they split, that she has just basically taken the baby and split and doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And since things were pretty bad, tracking her down has not been real high on the priority list.
0: Now, the last thing that's going on is that Freedom Force, who are the old Brotherhood of Evil Mutants now working for the government, found out that X-Factor was the Exterminators, and they have outed Warren as being the mutant who is funding X-Factor, this supposed anti-mutant organization.
1: They haven't outed X-Factor as being the same as the Exterminators. They've just outed Warren as being X-Factor's funding source. And specifically, they've outed him to Trish Tilby, who is a journalist who's been hounding X-Factor pretty much from the start and who will eventually end up hooking up with Beast.
0: So, with all of that groundwork laid, that sounds kind of euphemistic, doesn't it? Now that we have laid that groundwork, let's talk about X-Factor number 12 through 15, a.k.a. the really dark arc where X-Factor gets really, really good.
1: Except you wouldn't guess it based on the cover to X-Factor 12, which is lighthearted, cheerful, and features our favorite renegade teenage mutant, Boom Boom.
0: So, boom boom, we first met her back in Secret Wars 2. In
1: which she was literally the only good thing.
0: Yeah, so she's a teenage runaway, she's kind of rebellious and spontaneous and has little regard for the consequences of any of her actions. And
1: she will blow you the fuck up.
0: Yeah, that's her mutant power blowing people the fuck up. She can make these little time bombs that explode after she counts down. We saw her at the end of the last issue working in a gang of teenage girls for the old Silver Age X-Men villain, The Vanisher and trying to leave.
1: You know, I feel like having a creepy old guy running it takes away a lot of the point of having a girl gang.
0: Right, then it's just sort of like Uncomfortable Charlie's Angels, like more uncomfortable. (laughs) Wow.
1: So going back to X-Factor 12, we've got a fill-in artist on this issue, and that is Mark... Sexy Jumpsuits Silvestri.
0: That's actually on his birth certificate, by the way. It's just a coincidence that he did actually draws sexy jumpsuits.
1: God, I hope so. I associate that with him so closely. And it's such a weird thing because he is going to be the ongoing artist on X-Men for years and years and years and years later. So what I associate him with very closely, much more than this, because again, he's just a fill in here, is the Australia era. Mm -hmm. And as a result, every time I see his Jean Grey, I double take and think it's Madeline Pryor.
0: Yeah, because Madeline Pryor is a major character in the Australia era in Uncanny X-Men.
1: And of course, they're identical, which, you know, I said this to you and you're like, no, it makes sense. That's what you're supposed to do. But you're not because he hasn't drawn Madeline Pryor yet.
0: That's what you specifically are supposed to do, Rachel Yeah, It's
1: just become this weird time loop for me, like the Mark Silvestri's sexy jumpsuits time loop.
0: Oh, man, it's just like Groundhog Day, except sexy jumpsuits instead of Bill Murray. Or maybe Bill Murray in a sexy jumpsuit.
1: He also draws really hilarious body language. I think that's something that he's going to tone down eventually. But this issue, everyone is just gesturing wildly all the time. It's like fucking Resident Evil 1. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, but Silvestri is a great artist. I mean, I like Walter Simonson better on this book. He's certainly the definitive artist for the book. But Silvestri is excellent. I'm really glad he was on X-Men for as long as he was. Yeah,
1: comparing people to Walter Simonson is kind of fundamentally unfair, I think.
0: It's true. We open up in a hospital where things are terrible.
1: Right. Now, Angel's wings have basically been destroyed. They are severely infected. They are gangrenous. They really need to be amputated. And Angel is just flat out refusing to allow this to happen.
0: Right. I mean, you know, this is how he's defined himself for most of his life. This is the freedom that he feels. This is, you know, what he feels makes him kind of special and unique and makes him Warren Worthington.
1: Which is kind of sad when you actually think about it.
0: It's true. So some of X-Factor are in the hospital with him. And on the news, there's a story about the bombing of the apartment of Karma's younger siblings. We saw that well, they during. The they mutant. don't
1: say that it's Karma's younger siblings. They just say, you know, the apartment of family members of a known mutant was bombed. And Jean and Scott, who are watching, were in sort of delirious at this point, totally failed to make any connection to the Xavier School or the New Mutants, which is sort of weird.
0: Well, you know, that's the trend for this era. And they realize, wait a minute, you know who else is not a mutant, but a prominent mutant activist?
1: And in fact, is on the news being a prominent mutant activist, which is what reminded us of this in the first place. They don't come up with spontaneously. She's on the TV.
0: Yeah, well, it's Sarah Gray, Jean's sister. And they're like, crap, you know, if these other mutant people, families were getting attacked, then Sarah might be in danger. Too.
1: Now, this is extra awkward because Sarah doesn't actually know that Gene's alive. Aside from briefly breaking into her parents' house and then leaving immediately after her resurrection, Jean has not made any attempts to get in touch with her family since coming back. And again, they don't know, which again is weird because obviously her sister follows mutant affairs pretty closely and she's been on the TV a ton as part of X-Factor and the Exterminator. So you'd think they would have made the connection.
0: I'm just saying when she's part of X-Factor, she's got sunglasses. When she's part of the Exterminator, she's got a mask. Could be any red-haired woman with telekinesis. Okay. I mean, there are a couple later.
1: I mean, maybe, you know, it would explain a lot if Jean somehow, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm thinking of, like, Clark Kent explanations. Maybe Jean, like, projects a low-level psionic face-blindness field.
0: It turns out she just looks like a potato to anyone who sees her. Just a normal-sized potato that Cyclops carries around with little sunglasses on it. Cannon.
1: That got really weird really fast.
0: Doesn't seem weird to me.
1: It's getting into portal territory there, man.
0: Well, anyway, potatoes aside...
1: Jean is irate at the idea that she should have gotten in touch with her family, too, which is kind of funny. And she's like, yeah, well, you haven't talked to your wife either, to which Scott justifiably responds. Yeah, but I've been trying to call her for like nine issues. Come on.
0: It's really just editorial fiat that means that I can't. I mean, geez, lady. Right. You just didn't even try to call. So, as all this hospital drama is going on, we cut to wacky hijinks. That's kind of the way this arc is going to go for a lot of it, is we have Scott and Gene and Warren with all this super dramatic stuff going on, and then we have Hank and Bobby back at X-Factor headquarters, and it's like, you know, just silly comedy stuff.
1: Their lives are going to go to hell next arc. But for now, they're doing okay.
0: Right. They're, you know, making breakfast for some of the rescued Morlocks. And like, you you know, you see Skids trying to control her force field enough to even eat toast and yelling, gotcha, when she does, which is kind of adorable.
1: But unfortunately, this blissful moment is inevitably interrupted by a frantic call for X-Factor. This is from Boom Boom, who has decided to get revenge on the Vanisher for not letting her keep everything she steals. And she calls from an arcade and says, yeah, there's this evil mutant scene. He's been harassing me, you know, trying to get me to turn evil and stuff like that.
0: Boom Boom is perhaps not the greatest thespian of her time. I
1: love her so much.
0: Oh, yeah. So X-Factor is like, well, okay, that's kind of weird, but I guess we should go check it out, right? Actually,
1: no. You know what? I'm going to say that she's probably selling this reasonably because we're talking about a world where a preeminent group, you know, referred to itself as the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and genuinely believed that the mutant part of their name was the branding issue.
0: You do perhaps make a good point.
1: Maybe the Marvel Universe just sort of takes D&D alignment systems for granted.
0: It's possible. So, yeah, Boom Boom calls them over. They head out and Caliban, who is one of the Morlocks, who was actually the first Morlock we ever met when he tried to kidnap and marry Kitty Pride a long time ago.
2: Awkward. Um, but he's a
0: good guy now. He's like, hey, can I come with you? I'm a mutant tracker. That's my mutant power. I could help out. And Hank says, you know, we appreciate it, dude, but you really don't look human and we need discretion. So we're just going to go.
1: Can't they just like put a hat and some really big sunglasses on him?
0: I mean, that's what I would do.
1: Artie wanders off in a trench coat like every other issue.
0: Yeah, they could just give him that trench coat. Maybe it's a special trench coat. I don't even know. Actually, I want to take an aside here and talk about Boom Boom as a style icon.
1: This is something you're coming back to a lot, Miles. I'm just saying That's there was kids, some Boom Boom.
0: amazing fashion in the 80s that is really confusing to me and really exciting.
1: See, I want to talk about Boom Boom as a proto-jubilee.
0: We could do that too. We could do both.
1: They kind of overlap.
0: They do. I mean, they're both, you know, mall kids. They're both runaways at the time that we will not they're runaways both specifically but specifically They specifically
1: rats. They both hang out at arcades all the time.
0: I would say Boom Boom and is a lot the more And break the machines
1: using their powers. Mm-hmm.
0: I would say Boom Boom is a lot more destructive and unpredictable.
1: Yes. She's
0: troubled, but highly entertaining. Yeah, she's got like this like oversized jacket sweatshirt thing, super spiky hair, giant sunglasses.
1: I feel like Boom Boom is genuinely the kid that Jubilee is trying to come across as.
0: Did they ever hang out? I feel like if they did, they would hate each other. In fact, I'm pretty sure that they did, and they did hate each other. I'm
1: fairly sure that you're right, although I don't remember specifics there.
0: Well, anyway, X-Factor heads out, and in the meantime, the vanisher shows up and is like, Oh, kid, you know, I'm sorry. You're right. You should keep keep everything. You're really important to me. And so she starts having second thoughts. And when X Factor shows up, well, at least Hank and Bobby, she, you know, tries to distract them and then sticks a time bomb in the back of Iceman's jumpsuit and runs away.
1: And then points them to the Vanisher again. Like, I'm not really sure who she's playing, and I'm not really sure that she's sure who she's playing in this scene because she goes back and forth on the Vanisher thing repeatedly.
0: She has a very short attention span. She
1: really does, and really poor judgment, which is how they're then subsequently able to track her. She gets away, and the other kids at the arcade cover for her because she is one of them, damn it, and she is the best Dig Dug player in all the land, and they're specific about this. They don't care if she's a mutant because God damn it, she has the high score on Dig Dug.
0: Hey, that's basically a free pass. You could do whatever you want. You're actually legally allowed to murder one person per year if you maintain the high score in Dig Dug.
1: I'm trying to think of some kind of last Starfighter riff here where Dig Dug is preparing you for something.
0: Doing a lot of sewer maintenance? I'm not really sure. I don't know. Wow. Reminds me of that Clerks the Animated Series episode where Randall plays the pyramid game and then they have him build a pyramid by hand.
1: I remember that distinctly.
0: It's a great episode. Yeah. But yeah, I love this because this is the first taste we get of Boom Boom exasperating the crap out of Iceman and Beast, especially Beast. And it is comedy gold. They chase her through this fancy restaurant. They're all like knocking over tables and splattering plates on rich patrons. And it's hilarious. And I love Boom Boom. And I should hate her because she's horribly obnoxious. But she's so damn endearing. No,
1: she's delightful. And again, she has no impulse control. She has no attention span. She's basically entirely selfish, but not malicious. And that's a fun character. She's also excited. character whose powers are pretty much custom built for really good visual comic timing because she creates these time bombs and then there's a countdown for them. So you've got a timing device built in that plays out beautifully in panel format and that here Sylvester and later on Simonson are just going to take non-stop advantage of. Oh yeah.
0: And I think part of why she is sympathetic despite being this force of like elemental chaotic destruction is that, you know, we do know a little bit about her backstory and yeah, she totally uses it to manipulate people to, you know, cry on command and yeah, stuff. Yeah, she
1: very clearly can cry on cue, which is great. But the fact is,
0: she does have a rough past. You know, she's an abused child. She's a runaway. She had this weird connection with the Beyonder and things just got super strange. She tried to turn to the X-Men and was basically ignored because they were so distracted by the Beyonder.
1: And so wildly out of character.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yes, that too. And so, you know, I mean, you get the impression that all of this misbehavior, essentially, is just coming from her acting out because she doesn't know how to interact with human beings and she's had such weird relationships.
1: Yeah, no, Boom Boom is a character who has learned lessons from her past and at this point is fighting to steal the petty change of a world that hates and fears her <laughs> pretty much yeah she
0: actually reminds me of sarah from dragon age inquisition in that regard a character i loved and i know a lot of people didn't it's the same kind of deal you know tragic crappy past turns into a really obnoxious annoying person because of it but if you can cut through that she's super solid and awesome
1: is this going to turn into a thing where we awkwardly cross cast x factor in dragon age
0: oh that would get way too complicated and this is already going to be I a could get
1: cameron to do that
0: i bet we probably could yes
1: I should clarify which, because when we use that name just by itself in X Factor, it's always Cameron Hodge. I'm talking about Cameron Harris, who's a senior editor at Bioware and my BFF.
0: Yes, yes. Not Cameron Hodge. She would just kill us. Good
1: Cameron. Right. Good real person, Cameron.
0: (laughs) Check. Hi. So, um, yeah, they do manage to catch up with Boom Boom and manage to convince her to come with them. Iceman immediately softens when he hears her story. And so thus, Boom Boom joins the cast of X Factor long term, and it's going to have that exasperated Hank McCoy feel for a long time.
1: You know... When we talked about Mojo, we talked about him being a character who kind of applied cartoon logic to real life, and I feel like Boom Boom is kind of a less malicious equivalent of that.
0: Yeah, kind of, you know, less with the genocide and more with the almost blowing people up but never actually doing so. I mean, she's
1: like human roadrunner, basically.
0: Pretty much, but with a way better fashion sense. I'm going to keep coming back to that fashion sense. We mentioned the as-mentioned posts we do. Check it out just for Boom Boom's outfit.
1: You should cosplay her.
0: That would be amazing. She usually doesn't have a beard like mine, but, you know, whatever, close enough.
1: Oh, man, you know what would be an amazing group cosplay that, again, no one ever does because no one ever remembers that they exist? What's that? That whole set of kids of this era, like the second string X-Factor folks. so like like Rusty and Skids and Richter. Rusty and Skids, Richter, once he gets there, Artie and Leech, Boom Boom.
2: I love this plan. You could really
1: just do Boom Boom and Skids (laughs) and, and, and hit the peak because everyone else is just kind of wears
0: clothes. Well, anyway, as all of this is going on, we have a tonal complete shift. And I should say we are changing up the order that things happen in to make it a little clearer to describe.
1: This is a lot of interwoven stuff in plot lines. This is a storytelling technique that Simonson is very much carrying on from Claremont of going between the A, B, C and D plots with additional occasional asides very rapidly.
0: Right. And so one of the plots we go to is, you know, to Cleveland, randomly.
1: Meanwhile, in Cleveland, there's a hellmouth in Cleveland.
0: True, yes. I don't think that's what we are talking about here, though, but it might be.
1: What there is that's relevant here in Cleveland is an anorexic teenage girl named Autumn who is fighting with her parents. who are trying to get her to eat so she won't be hospitalized again. She is digging in her heels. They're furious. Everyone's being kind of awful. Finally, she's a mutant and she turns all of the food on the table to ash and storms off to her bedroom where she finds Apocalypse waiting for her.
0: Okay, so like it's one of those classic stories, right? You know, there's the teenage girl and her parents just don't understand her and she's clumsy and shy but has a good heart and sparkling eyes and then she goes to her bedroom and she meets a magical prince who will take her away to a magical land or alternately En Sabah Nur Apocalypse who will turn her into famine, one of his horsemen.
1: Do you think he was just like hanging out in her room waiting for her during dinner, like judging her based on her posters, thinking like,
2: Oh, she likes Bon Jovi? Apocalypse approves. Clearly, Bon Jovi is the pinnacle of evolution, the fittest who will
0: survive and lead us into a new era. But then, like, he gets sort of bored. Don't stop believin'. Because dinner's taking a really long time, and so he just starts, you know, messing around with her My
2: Little Ponies, and he's like, Alright, this pony, this pony shall serve as the steed of war.
1: Who is this Madonna? Is she a mutant? Should I perhaps pursue her as the horseman of death, or should I wait for this X-Factor arc to play out?
0: Oh man, this is beautiful. But actually, what he does say—so I love Apocalypse's dialogue, because pretty much 100% of the time, it's unnecessarily dramatic
2: and epic, and I am fully in support of that. Oh So, yeah. you know, Autumn shows up, and he says to her, You are a mutant of great power, and I offer you dominion. Take my hand, Autumn, and they will kneel before you, will do as you say, will eat only when you allow it, for through this circle of light you will be transported and reborn. You will be Autumn no more but famine, third horseman of apocalypse. Okay, I just love those lines. And so the idea
1: of her also just sort of typical angry teenager or something and be like yeah, whatever,
0: <laughs> whatever, man. So, yes, they all teleport away. And Scott and Jean do get to Sarah Gray's house while they're bickering over Madeline Pryor, as they understandably do. And nobody's there.
1: And they do what you do at the Gray's house, which is break in. Yes. Have we ever actually seen someone knock or use the door normally or use a key to get into the Gray's house? I think that door is
0: just painted on. I don't even think it's a door. <laughs> I mean, why bother? It's cheaper this way. Well, no, way. Jean
1: just breaks the lock. She doesn't actually, like, smash down the door.
0: I like my idea better. But
1: yeah, everyone breaks into the Gray's house and it's abandoned. No one is there and they get there just in time to answer a call.
0: And the caller says something along the lines of, hey, you should have listened to us and gotten out while there was still time, but now it's too late. And the house explodes.
1: Whoops. We'll see this particular plotline explored further in Uncanny X-Men number 215, when Storm and Wolverine stop by and then get kidnapped by some dudes who hunt humans for sport.
0: Right, yeah. I really do love the little crossovers between X-Factor and X-Men in this era.
1: Yeah, those brief mutual nods.
0: And so they get out because, you know, mutant powers, telekinesis, they're pretty much okay.
1: But they come to some alarming conclusions. The first, Jean decides that Sarah's probably fine. Obviously, she left the house beforehand there was there been no signs of a struggle so it seems like maybe she got the warning and got out on time this is not the case but we won't find that out for a very very long time scott meanwhile remembers that he has been trying and failing to reach madeline for a really long time and he's been assuming that she's just left him that she's changed her phone number but given what's happened to karma's siblings and what happened at sarah's house he's now thinking that maybe he hasn't been able to get in touch with her because something's happened
0: Yeah. So he's realizing that he's gotta go, and he tells Gene exactly that, you know, it's about time I took care of these responsibilities and did the right thing. So we've talked in previous episodes about how comics can do something no other medium really can, which is to show somebody's thoughts and their words side by side very easily. And I love the way this plays out here. So Gene thinks, I've lost him, but I lost him already, didn't I, when he married Maddie, and says, Maddie's your wife, Scott. What else can you do? And she's got this perfect, like, brave, sad smile here. Again, this is Mark Silvestri, but like Walter Simonson, he draws facial expressions very well. He can get a lot of subtlety in there. And it's kind of sad.
1: It is. We're going to get back to the two of them in this next issue, which actually is where we are now. That's X-Factor number 13, Ghosts. Hey, wait a
0: minute. That title was used by an X-Men story recently. That's
1: cheating. Everyone has used that title. It's probably like the second most common title ever. And we have Walter Simonson back on art. Yay! um, As we should. As we established at the end of X Factor number 12, Cyclops has decided that he is going to head out to Alaska to see if he can track down Madeline and implicitly his kid, although I think that everyone periodically forgets that Nathan Christopher exists.
0: It's really weird. Scott talks a lot about worrying about Maddie, and he, like, almost never mentions his son, which, I mean, I'm not a parent, but that seems strange to me. Maybe
1: he thinks of them as kind of a package deal. I mean, it was obvious really early on that he's just entirely, like, disconnected from the idea of being a parent. Oh, man,
0: he's like one of those zoo animals that, like, rejects his puppies or kittens or whatever, and they have to be raised by, like, a, a capybara.
1: Or, like, a horrible clone. The zoo animals who get rejected or ignored by their parents and so are given to the Ascani cult.
0: So there's a mother Ascani copybara raising Nathan Christopher at this time. We don't see where he is on page, so we can only assume that this is, in fact, the case.
1: That is definitely not the case.
0: Says you. You didn't write the comic.
1: Miles, you're describing something charming, heartwarming, and functional.
0: Oh, right. That would never fly in this era. This is (laughs) X-Factor.
1: We can't have nice things.
0: Forget it, Jake. It's X-Factor.
1: Pretty damn much. So... Let's see. Scott is headed off to Alaska to see if he can figure out what's going on with Madeline. And before he goes, he's planning to swing by the hospital to say bye to Gene and Warren. Warren is getting sicker and sicker. He still won't let anyone cut off his wings. And it's pretty obviously going to kill him. And he's pretty obviously come to terms with that. He's talking about X Factor being provided for, you know, what kind of legacy he's going to leave.
0: And he's also been freaking out more and more because he's realizing that with his connection to X Factor being public, with the fact that a mutant is funding X Factor, if he has to take the stand about that in court or something, then everything is going to come crashing down. His reputation is going to be ruined. X-Factor is going to be ruined. This whole cause he's building with his friends is going to go completely to hell. He feels trapped like there's no way out.
1: To be fair, he is also really, really sick. And it's implied in only loose touch with reality or sporadic touch with reality right now.
0: There is that. Yeah. So
1: there's that going on. And Gene, meanwhile, is really frustrated because, you know, Warren's going on about He's nothing without his wings. They're everything. They're what defines him. And, well, Gene used to be a telepath.
0: Right. And she's had that taken away from her cold turkey.
1: I mean, it sucked pretty hard, but she's been dealing and she's frustrated with that. She's missing that because, again, she's on a team with a bunch of people with poor communication skills. And she and Warren have a moment of connection and and have the return, you know, awkward misunderstanding motif. I think this is the last time it's going to happen, specifically where, like, Scott or Warren walks up to the other talking to Gene and assumes that there's something romantic going on and then just leaves. And Gene manages to catch this one in the act and goes downstairs to say goodbye to Scott before he can head off to the airport.
0: And I actually really like this scene. He says, you and Angel seemed happy up there. Why spoil it? You know I have to go to Maddie.
1: And she responds, you know, I'm not trying to stop you. I'm saying goodbye. Goodbye. And they kiss and it seems really natural, but it's, I realize I'm pretty sure it's the first time that they've kissed or really even much touched since Jean came back.
0: I think you're right. Yeah, I think it is.
1: I mean, the first time it took them, what, like, you know, 98 issues. So,
0: well, they're slow movers. I can understand <laughs> that.
1: Now, I love kind of what grown ups they're being about this because it's obvious from their dialogue. It's obvious that they each know that they both really want to be together but that they're also really committed to doing this right and doing the right thing, even if it means not being able to have that. Speaking of not being able to have what you want, while they're saying, you know, their tender goodbyes downstairs, Warren gets a visitor, the one and only Cameron Hodge. And Cameron is here to say not, no, really, dude, you really need to have your wings amputated, or I'm sorry, bro, this really sucks. I'm your oldest friend and I just wanted to see how you were. But yeah, you're getting subpoenaed to federal court.
0: We know Cameron Hodge is kind of a business-first dick, but it's becoming clearer and clearer. Wait, I think he might be a kind of evil business-first dick.
1: Well, no, no, no. We know that Cameron Hodge is an actual goddamn supervillain. Contemporary readers would have known that he was a business-first dick. Spoiler, Cameron Hodge is an actual supervillain.
0: Oh, you have no idea. Well, I mean, well, we, we've you talked do. about it, so yeah. they
1: do have some idea. He's going to be menacing the X-Men for like 10 years after this. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. He becomes a head on spider legs. It's amazing.
0: That's one of my aspirations, actually.
1: Not that head on spider legs. No, no, no. A different one. He's a jerk.
0: He doesn't have my beard or hair.
1: He does not. Although it might get tangled in the spider legs.
0: This is problematic. I'll have to do like a man bun.
1: Oh, no. Or you could just do intricate braids. That could work, too.
0: Well, anyway, there are options. There are options. options. Yeah. And so Warren is, you know, just harping more and more on this. X-Factor would be better off if I were dead. X-Factor would be better off if I were dead. God damn it, Cameron Hodge. Also, God damn it, Harpoon, who was the one that messed up Warren's wings in the first place, mostly. And so, God
1: damn it, Mr. Sinister. God damn it, everybody.
0: God damn it, everybody. The X-Factor story.
1: Pretty much. Speaking of God damn it, everybody, Scott is headed off to Alaska, where things will continue to be terrible. Remember how the very beginning of the series, I mentioned that Scott Summer's life for like X-Factor 1 through 5 is just literally the impossible. Embodiment of an anxiety dream.
0: And it's so much that right now. It's it is. Am- this
1: is part two of that motif. It is phenomenally awful. So Scott gets to Alaska and he heads to Maddie's house, to the house they'd shared. And it is for sale. It's then apparently abandoned. He is going on an ongoing thought bubble angst trip, thinking about spending most of his childhood alone, how he's now abandoned his kid. Oh, he remembered he had a kid.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. Good job, Scott.
1: And discovers also that Maddie has changed the locks, but having spent a lot of time with Jean Grey, he knows that the appropriate response to a locked house is just to break the fuck in.
0: Not even if it's your house. I think Jean Grey just goes door to door, just breaking each lock in turn, and then she just goes home.
1: <laughs> she doesn't even go in? No, no. <laughs> Man, what the hell?
0: It's like one of those cats that keep scratching at your door, and as soon as you open it, they just sort of walk away. Except telekinetic. I'm glad we don't have a telekinetic cat. That would be terrible.
1: Especially our cat.
0: Oh, geez. Yeah. She's
1: kind of a failure at cat stuff in general. But like her one saving grace is she's a very bad jumper so we can keep things out of her reach. And if she were telekinetic, that would not work.
0: That would be terrible. Yeah.
1: That would be so bad. Anyway, Scott is not telekinetic. Scott has force beams that come out of his eyes and he uses them to break down the door. And unfortunately, this attracts the attention of a very, very unwelcome guest who has been hanging out. Under the ocean near Alaska in the Bering Strait.
0: Okay, so the issue actually opens with this dude, and this dude is not exactly a dude. This dude is master mold. He's a
1: dude. Robots can have gender.
0: Well, okay, so he's a male-identified robot.
1: He seems to be. He's also partly overwritten with the brain patterns of Stephen Lang at this point, isn't he?
0: Yeah, so I believe you've described Master Mold as a sentinel who poops out other sentinels. I
1: stand by that description. Pretty accurate. It's entirely accurate. It's what he does. He sits in an enormous throne, he poops out other sentinels, then he, you know, crashes down from space, ends up under the ocean, and comes back as an enormous zombie robot. And what he's done in between that, so we've actually
0: only seen Master Mold a couple of times, like, ever. He fought the X-Men way at the beginning of the Silver Age, and we also saw him in a Hulk annual from the late 70s where he kidnapped Iceman and Angel and fought them and the Hulk.
1: He was, I believe, specifically part of the X-Men's first encounter of Sentinels during the Silver Age, which is unfortunate because it would have been really funny if he'd been part of the later one and was coming back because he retained, you know, a grudge on Cyclops for convincing him to go off and fight the Sun. Right. Which is how the X-Men resolved their second Sentinel encounter, which I I still love. Like, it's the best solution ever.
0: Yeah, go fight the Sun, Grandpa. (laughs) They're
1: like, okay.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's a little Pete insult from The Adventures of Pete and Pete.
1: Oh, it really is.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah, Master Mold did manage to survive his encounter with the Hulk and Iceman and Angel and crash down to in Earth, space. where he was thought destroyed. And so now he's in the water. And, okay, so Louise Simonson is not Chris Claremont. But one thing Louise Simonson can also do is have awesome narration. And the narration around Master Mold is universally glorious in this entire arc.
1: Yeah, Master Mold is a locus of massive drama.
0: So, for instance, when we first see him, the frigid waters of Alaska's Bering straight enfolded him. And for now, there is oblivion. But wait. Fire. Ashes. Death. These are not for Master Mold. And then later on, when he wakes up after he senses Scott's powers, a mutant has used his power. Power so intense that even the Master Mold's damaged receptors register it. He compares it to his scanner profiles, and he knows that mutant is part of the secret. He's one of the Twelve, one of the Strong, a pivotal mutant around whom others will gather.
1: Whoa, 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 wait a minute. The Twelve.
0: The Twelve. So, the Twelve- I can't
1: believe the Twelve go back this far. I know, I didn't realize
0: it until I reread this. So the Twelve are this thing that are going to come up in a storyline by that name, like, way the hell later.
1: And they are roughly analogous to the third Summer's brother in that they are much, much better as a plot component when they are teased and evoked as a vague prophecy than when they're actually realized.
0: Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the 12. So Master Mold here identifies them in his dramatic caption as these really powerful mutants who are going to sort of rise up and lead other mutants, presumably. We'll learn a little more over the years. Basically, there are these 12 mutants who are destined to do this. Master Mold is programmed for reasons we don't know now to destroy them. It'll later turn out that a time traveling Trask named Tanya, hey, that's really alliterative.
1: That's Bolivar's daughter.
0: Will go back in time from the future where she traveled to tell him about the Twelve, because uh, in the future the Twelve are known.
1: Except sort of, because she was a part of the Ascani cult in the future, and she is a wildly unreliable narrator. And the thing with the Twelve is that there are like four consistent members, but the lineup shifts every time, the descriptions shift every time, the focus shifts every time. The eventual realization of it is just really kind of dumb.
0: It's a total letdown. But for now, the idea... It's super letdown
1: and it leads into just sort of one of the weirdest, most scattered eras, which is when Cyclops is possessed by Apocalypse and the team's kind of all over the place. There are a bunch of like weird little ages of Apocalypse one-shots scattered around and no one's quite sure what's going on. Cable Um, just sort of broods nonstop for two years. He's
0: very good at that. But for now, we just know the basic idea of the Twelve, which sounds really cool. So let's just go with that for now before the comics will eventually ruin it for us.
1: Okay, so Master Mold at this point starts to claw his way up out of the depths like some sort of Cyclopean behemoth.
0: Wait, we have more narration. I'm just going to keep doing this, guys.
1: You are? Shape,
0: memory, conscience, empathy, pity... All gone, burned away in his fall from heaven. Wait,
1: did he ever have any of those except for the first two? He's a robot, man.
0: Well, hey, it sounds good. Just go with it. Lang built him once. Now Master Mold rebuilds himself from the debris of the destroyed rigging and the shreds of knowledge in his demolished mind.
1: Like, you wouldn't think a creepy zombie robot would be a thing that would make sense visually, but it works so well here.
0: Yeah, it really, really does.
1: Anyway, creepy zombies aside, Scott, who doesn't know that Master Bold is currently, you know, clawing his way back up to pursue him like its own personal, you know, apocryphal white whale, has retreated to a hotel for the night to try to figure out what's going on, where he gets a call from Hank McCoy. And Hank
0: is calling from, you know, a scene of wacky comedy. There's like Artie and Leech knocking down a lamp and the Morlock ape turning into a steam shovel to clean it up and Boom Boom trying to blow everything up. And he's basically saying, hey, Scott, things are not good with Angel. Like, we really need you here, dude, please. And, you know, presumably parenthetically. And I don't know what to do with all these horrifying teenagers, so maybe you can help with that, too.
1: Okay, so he's calling Scott... Because someone is having feelings issues and because there are out of control teenagers.
0: Okay, to be fair, Scott may not be the expert at either of what those is, things. I'm
1: specifically wondering what he's expecting Scott to do with Angel. Like we're thinking maybe you could like take him to wander around in a fugue state for a couple days to some docks and like yell.
0: Or maybe you could teach these teenagers to be super angsty and to be trained in a paramilitary organization to be soldiers with real emotional problems that will haunt them for their whole lives. Okay, to
1: be fair, if we are basing this on personal experience, he probably could like like, get them relatively organized.
0: He's really good at pool. He could teach them to play pool.
1: Oh, yeah, they could set a pool team.
0: See, there we go. In the rec room. It would be good.
1: Okay, so anyway. But no, Scott is busy. Scott is extremely concerned about the situation in Alaska and grows only more so the next day when he tries to figure out what's going on and discovers that, in fact, someone claiming to be him went to the real estate office and put the house on the market.
0: Yeah, the thing you mentioned about an anxiety dream. Here's where we see a lot more of that because he keeps looking around for Madeline and there's no record of her ever existing. It's like that short-lived 90s science fiction show, Nowhere Man. It's like that, except with Madeline Pryor.
1: Yeah, no, Madeline has been burned and the agency is disavowing any knowledge of her existence. There's no record of her employment. In fact, the company they were working for, which was his grandparents' company, has been sold and his grandparents have moved and left no forwarding address. And their one really good friend in the company has suddenly died. And Scott's records are all there, but there's no record of Madeline. There's no record of Nathan.
0: And we'll later find out what's up with this and hint, Mr. Sinister, he's messing with everything. But for Scott right now, he thinks he's going insane. And in fact, he does start hallucinating. He is
1: kind of going insane. It's just that the Maddie thing isn't a symptom of it. No, Scott is having a massive psychotic break and he is hallucinating. Which is actually also really funny because, God, he's just getting massively gaslit from two directions because at this point, Cameron Hodge is also planting holographic projectors around the X Factor headquarters to convince him that Phoenix is coming back.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Scott, dude. So there are the actual
1: hallucinations. There are the fake hallucinations. And there's the whole Maddie thing, which is actually going on, but being set up to look like it's not. Right. So again, literally an anxiety dream. He's hallucinating Xavier yelling at him. He tries to find like hospital records, you know, from when his son was born. There's nothing there he looks up the dates of the plane crash that maddie allegedly walked away from finds the crash but no record of any survivors in, yeah. in, in microfilms and once again goes back to the, oh my god maybe she's the phoenix thing in the middle of this he files a police report and i mean even as he's walking out of the station overhears the police saying well you know i don't entirely believe that she really exists at all he's obviously not really in his right mind
0: And so he heads back to the house that he and Madeline shared. And I really love this scene. At this point, his hallucinations are kicking in hardcore.
1: I appreciate Simonson picking up this thread because one of the things we talked about very early in X Factor is it's really, really obvious that Cyclops is not okay, that he's done things like just disappear for three days and, you know, not really have any recollection of where he was or what he was doing. They just, you know, finally find him wandering around, reminiscing about all of the places that have been shut down. And the extent to which Either the rest of his team fails to pick up on this, doesn't care or assumes that this is how people normally act because they're all Marvel superheroes is kind of shocking to me. And this is one of two upcoming sort of climaxes of that. So anyway, in the house, he's hallucinating these confrontations with this sort of metamorphosing version of Madeline and Jean and Phoenix and finally just attacks it and ends up basically knocking down the house.
0: Right. At which point he's found by a bunch of cops who just see a dude sitting in the ruins of a house. Well,
1: he ends up basically destroying the house. But in doing so, he kind of gets to the prize at the bottom of the crazy box, which is proof that he is not, in fact, out of his mind. He's gotten to the one detail that whoever erased Madeline and Nathan forgot to pick up, which is Nathan's rattle, which had fallen behind a radiator.
0: And so, Scott, you know, he's sitting here in the ruins of this house and sees another vision. This time, it's not one of his red-headed current or former partners. It's Charles Xavier. Satisfied, Cyclops? You lost your temper and blew a house apart. I trained you in self-control. You
1: trained me to be a hero, one of Xavier's brave little mutant soldiers. Save mutants, save humanity, save the world. No task too difficult, no job undone. If I'd been here in Alaska, tending to my own life instead of in New York, playing mutant savior, none of this would have happened.
0: You can't lie to a telepath, Scott. More drew you to New York than your work. Jean-
1: Forget Jean! I had work in New York, important work, your work! And now my wife, my baby have disappeared. Go on, get out of here. You're not there anyway. You're a delusion, just like your programming is delusion. Now... The cops at this point find him sitting in the ruins of a house that's just blown up and do the reasonable thing that you do when you find someone sitting in the ruins of an exploded house rambling at someone who's not there, which is to take him in for questioning. What they are coming from, however, is also relevant to this, because at the very end of X Factor 13, we see the corpse of a redheaded woman wash up in Alaska.
0: A badly decomposed, long dead redheaded woman who it seems pretty clear is probably Madeline Pryor.
1: So let's talk about that for a sec, because we've been following X-Men, too. So we know that this can't be Madeline Pryor, right?
0: Exactly. Now, if you were just following X-Factor, you might not. But everyone in X-Factor doesn't realize that. Ultimately, what we're going to find out... Well, no one
1: in X-Men realizes it either, because it's just been sort of a side B-plot that we've seen glimpses of, that she is a Jane Doe in a hospital in San Francisco, or at least one version of her is.
0: And what we're ultimately going to find out is, amid Mr. Sinister and clones of Jean Grey and the Phoenix Force and stuff like that, basically every detail of this has been set up by Mr. Sinister to get Maddie out of the picture now that Jean is back. Mr. Sinister has always wanted to create an offspring between Cyclops and Jean Grey for his own complicated apocalypse-related reasons. And now that Gene's back, he doesn't need Maddie anymore. And thus, he's attempting to clean up after himself. And Cyclops is trying to follow this as Sinister does so.
1: And his plan, I think, is basically to get Nathan, get rid of Maddie. And what I assumed in this case is that it is actually a corpse of Madeline Pryor that washes up. It's just that Sinister has a bunch of spares. We know much later on that he's got legions of these. And if this is
0: confusing, if you're not familiar with the whole Madeline Pryor thing and you're just hearing it from us, Don't worry, just give us some time. Once we get to Around Inferno, we're going to explain all of this in great detail.
1: Oh my god, yeah, Sinister hasn't even actually appeared in the comics yet, but the extent to which you can see his hand retroactively through this entire arc is amazing. Meanwhile, everything is terrible, and we are, I think at this point, actually pretty well into X-Factor fourteen. Cyclops has just been arrested, and the cops who are taking him away assume things will go smoothly, but unfortunately for them, Remember Master Mold?
0: Yeah, he's been tracking Cyclops this whole time, you know, as one of the twelve, and every time Cyclops uses his powers, Master Mold can zoom in a little more on where he is.
1: He's also thrown a cog, and he has determined that, in fact, while Cyclops is a special target because he's one of the twelve, Master Mold has realized something, which is that all humans are special and unique snowflakes.
0: Which means, in his logic, in his robot logic, they're all mutants which means he has to eradicate the human race. Whoops. So he, you know, starts doing that here and there. And when he attacks Cyclops and the police officers who are bringing him in, he actually immediately kills one of the officers, pretty graphically, actually, leaving Cyclops and the other to flee to fight a running battle against this giant zombie robot.
1: And the other cop, being a sensible fellow, finally, you know, is like, okay, yeah, we can team up, we'll make it work. Cyclops talks him into giving him his visor back, Either way, I'm dangerous, but with my visor, I'm harnessed danger, which, yeah, that's a bit of a metaphor there.
0: Yeah, I think it kind of is.
1: Scott's also throughout this, you know, talking about Master Bold and basically comparing the two of them as basically things that were programmed for a purpose and have slipped their original programming, which is depressing and apt.
0: It really is. But eventually he does manage to defeat Mastermult. He does manage to blow him up by blowing up these oil tanks near him and survives, as does the cop, who basically says, yeah, so we were going to take you in for blowing up this house. You know, from what I remember, that robot did and you're off the hook, which really just reminds me of the end of Roadhouse starring Patrick Swayze. Did you see anything? I didn't see anything. Everyone
1: in this scene is wearing a shirt.
0: Well, yeah. Okay. Aside from that part. And everyone's saying like, you know, do you see anything? Do you see anything? After the villain dies. And then it turns to the one villain's henchman and they ask him, did you see anything? And he says, a polar bear fell on me. It's funnier if you've seen the movie. You should see the movie. Okay. Well, anyway, Roadhouse very much aside...
1: Unfortunately, not everything is smiles and grins because there are apparently only like two cops in Anchorage. And this is one of the guys who trawled Madeline Pryor out of the river and is like, so remember how you reported a missing woman with red hair? We've got something you should maybe see. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, things are likewise terrible. Angel's wings have begun to gangrene. They are clearly killing him. And not only that, but someone has decided that it would be cool to let the news in.
0: And so Trish Tilby, who we've seen before, shows up before Gene kicks her out. But Angel hears enough to realize that, wait a minute, there's some kind of a court order going on. What's happening? What's happening? And the next thing we see, in fact, a little bit later, is Jean finding out That Warren has been declared incompetent by a court, and the hospital's been court-ordered to do whatever it takes to save him, which means amputate his wings, which they're doing right now.
1: Well, fuck.
0: Yeah. And so, he wakes up at the beginning of number 15 with bandages over his wingless torso, which I gotta say, if you didn't know who Angel was, it would just be a dude who's bandaged up wearing tiny red shorts. But in this case, it's really gruesome and terrifying. We have only ever seen Angel with his wings, and here he is just with bulky bandages over where they used to be. Well,
1: he's visually always been defined by them. When they're not visible, they're obviously being concealed. Yeah. And they're sort of, again, the center of his identity. Everything is pretty terrible. And X-Factor is still of the opinion that the thing to do and the way to fix this is to call Scott back, which, again, he is still in Alaska identifying the body of his dead wife and continuing to hallucinate. So... Again, not really sure what that's going to fix.
0: Well, wait a minute. So things are really depressing, right? So we'll just go back to X-Factor headquarters, which is a comedy, right? Everything works out there, right?
1: Well, no, actually, because right now the Morlocks are at X-Factor headquarters and they are not getting along.
0: No, specifically, Mask has been picking fights with people, including Boom Boom. And basically, as this escalates, attacks Hank. He smushes Hank's face into putty the way he does and is about to kill him.
1: And he is stopped by Caliban.
0: Yeah, Caliban challenges him saying, okay, I know how the Morlocks do things. We fight, no powers. If I win, you put him back.
1: Watching Caliban's arc in here, the way he rises to a position of leadership, the way he sort of claims that responsibility is so bittersweet because on one hand, he's a character who's always been very retiring, very scared, very unwilling to stand up for himself. And it's cool to see him come into his own more. Unfortunately, the context in which he's doing it is a road pretty much straight to destruction. I think each half of the Morlocks think that the other half is dead, because remember, Callisto and the rest are with the X-Men right now.
0: Right, on Muir Island. no
1: one owns telephones in this universe. Yeah. He sees this as his last chance and the last chance of his people. And he is not equipped for this job. He's not equipped to handle it. And that is going to very quickly become his downfall.
0: Now, he does manage to beat Mask in single combat, thanks to Leech canceling out both their powers. Thus, Hank is saved. But the Morlocks decide, you know, this isn't a place for us. You couldn't protect your friend with the wings. We don't think you can protect us. We're going back to the tunnels.
1: Leech does that a lot, and he's really good at picking up on when he needs to. And the whole thing has a really kind of sad little kid trying to get his parents to stop fighting vibe. Oh, it totally Every does. single time it happens.
0: Yeah. And so the Morlocks all leave and head back down, except for Skids, who decides that she really wants to learn to control her power. Also, it is implied she really likes that red-headed pyrokinetic Rusty.
1: Yeah, no, I figured that she wanted to learn her- to control her powers primarily for like makeouts.
0: It's quite possible, yeah. Makeout class. It'd be good. And so, yeah, things are kind of okay there. As this is happening, Hank and Bobby, who, you know, previously have been the members of X Factor not embroiled in drama. They're just exhausted. They talk about what to do next. Maybe they can blow off some steam by training.
1: This sucks. We were supposed to be the lighthearted members, and now the drama has come to find us.
0: And in fact, that's not the only thing that finds them, because Bobby, in the midst of this, blinks out of existence while Hank isn't looking. It's like,
1: fuck this noise. I'm gonna go fuck off and be in Thor. So there.
0: Yeah, and we'll cover that later. He's off to Asgard.
1: He's off to a story that will be eventually revisited many years later in X-Men First Class in one of my favorite titled issues of that, which is The Littlest Frost Giant.
0: Yes, indeed. So as that's going on, Angel, you know, he's been watching news in the hospital He's, of course, all over the news with this he big has controversy. He like 20
1: newspapers. Who is bringing him these newspapers?
0: Irresponsible nurses, I think. And a nurse gives him these sleeping pills to calm him down. He just tongues them, throws them away, and sneaks out of the hospital, grabs, like, a doctor's coat, calls a cab, and heads off to the airport saying, "'One last time, I need to fly.'"
1: Speaking of flying, we cut away at this point to our first external glimpse of, I think, one of our favorite unlikely characters.
0: That being Ship, who is a giant spaceship floating in the sky above a city. So Ship is Apocalypse's base, essentially. It's celestial technology, I believe. Long story, not important right now. But we do see Apocalypse addressing his three horsemen that he has so far recruited, famine, pestilence, and war, who are now all horsemened out with, like, gold metallic faces and purpley uniforms and stuff like that.
2: And, man, I will never pass up a good Apocalypse speech, guys. Look below, my horsemen. How the world teems, crawls with wretched, struggling humanity. Weak, useless things. And our fellow mutants, softer even than the humans. The gene pool has become polluted. It must be cleansed. The weak removed that the strong have room to thrive. Patience, my horsemen. Soon you will thunder over the earth. In sickness will you test them pestilence. In war, in famine, and in death. Yes, death. The time is ripe to pluck the fourth. And then the strong will survive. Will live to sit at the right hand of apocalypse. And the weak. The week will burn!
1: You know what I really want to see? What's that? I want to see Apocalypse and Dr. Doom having a conversation about something super prosaic, like trying to decide what brand of cereal to buy at the grocery store.
2: Oh, man. Only the strongest cereal must survive this shopping trip.
1: Doom has decreed that he will have the small plastic prize at the bottom of their lucky charms. Would Apocalypse dare to stand in Doom's way?
2: The small plastic prize belongs only to the worthy! I like this plan. This is a good plan.
1: This is good. So Apocalypse and Doom, awkward roommates. I also want to see Apocalypse
0: like as a speechwriter for some political candidate. You know, the teleprompter is going by and everything is in capital letters and italics.
1: But the candidate just reads it in their normal voice.
0: Oh, man. In sickness, will you test them? Pestilence, in war, in famine, and in death. Oh, that would be terrible. Yeah. So, yeah, as all this is going on, Scott is in Alaska.
1: Speaking of death,
0: he's taken to identify this decomposed body and he realizes, yeah, that's Madeline Pryor. That's the body of his wife and she's been killed.
1: And he decides that he's going to stay. He's going to try to find out what happened to her. He's going to try to avenge her if he can. But vaguely, fortunately for X Factor, his friendly neighborhood hallucinations advise him to do otherwise and, and show up when he's at Maddie's grave to warn him that Angel is probably going to kill himself and maybe Scott should go back and attempt to intervene.
0: So Scott does head back to New York and get to the airport. He flies in just in time to see Gene and Hank, who have realized that something's not okay. And yeah,
1: Scott's, Scott's briefly in, oh, you guys didn't have to come pick me up. And they're like, no, no, Warren just disappeared and stole a plane.
0: And in fact, the plane is taking off. And as they watch, it flies off toward Arizona. That's where its flight plan is registered to. And then, well, then we cut to the cockpit and we see a somewhat delirious, weak, traumatized Warren Worthington sweating and flying this plane and just sort of mumbling to himself, gotta get away, up where I can breathe, back, pain, hard to sit, to think, they slice me up good, cut me down, and he's just babbling to himself, and turns the plane, and presses an arm button, I'm not sure what it arms, but he does anyway, and Scott, and Hank, and Jean watch below from the roof of the airport. As the plane Warren's in explodes. And it's really shocking because, I mean, okay, we as readers years and years later, we know that Warren is going to, I'm not going to say be okay because he's never going to be okay again. He really isn't. But he is going to still, you know, be around in some form or another. But if you're reading this at the time, I mean, the way this explosion looks, it looks pretty thorough. I mean, it's it got looks a great like,
1: sound effect. It looks
0: like Warren is straight up dead.
1: Well, at least we can take some comfort in knowing that he died as he lived half-naked at an airport.
0: That's kind of a good point. So, yeah, that is basically the end of this, you know? Our heroes watch from below as Gene tries to half-heartedly assure Scott that it's not his fault. And, yeah, basically everything is terrible. And I do enjoy that even the next issue blurb at the bottom of the page acknowledges how terrible everything is.
1: More torture, more guilt, more betrayal!
0: Yeah. So, okay, this is one of the darkest stories we've seen in an X-book ever. I also think this right here is where X-Factor not only gets good, but gets great. The storytelling in here, just the sense of stakes, the sense of effective melodrama and character interaction and character development is huge. Louise Simonson has finally made the book her own.
1: Well, and the sense of a really, really well-balanced combination of bad luck, malevolence, and mistakes.
0: Yeah, all leading to this tragedy, among other tragedies. Well,
1: the thing is, with a story like this, where everything is falling apart and everything is going to continue to fall apart for a while, things are just going to get worse and worse, I guess not for Angel precisely, but things are not going to get better. And it's really easy to write that off as just sort of inexorable misery and for it to become a slog. And here it manages to stay pretty interesting and pretty dynamic.
0: Yeah, it's still engaging. You still care about these characters and the story doesn't beat you down so much that you feel, you know, defeated, like there's no point in following them Mm -hmm. because they're growing and changing through all of this.
1: There are moments of grim but also really genuine triumph and how hard won those moments are gives them a lot more meaning.
0: Absolutely. So we don't have any questions to do this week.
1: Still sort of getting our sea legs post-move.
0: But we are happy to be back. We also want to definitely once again thank Al Collins and Graham McMillan for covering for us last time.
1: And teaching you all sorts of amazing things about Beast and actual Marvel supervillain Richard Nixon. And can we just get them to do that a ton? Because listening to the show and not like hearing my own voice is so much more fun.
0: (laughs) It's way easier, too, it turns out. I like the show so
1: much better when we don't have to do it.
0: (laughs) So I guess we are out of time for now.
1: We are Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Young, host of the Godzilla podcast Kaiju Cast.
0: New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher and at our website that we talked about before rachelandmiles.com. Check
1: out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, links to our shop and much, much more.
0: Our show is totally listener supported and ad free. And that's because entirely of our amazing Patreon supporters are incredibly generous listeners. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, check out the Link at the top of rachelonmiles.com.
1: We'll be back next week as Chris Claremont finishes his 50-plus issue run on New Mutants.
0: As the kids once again compete with their fuchsia-clad rivals, and Magneto joins the Hellfire Club.